I'm Yamilka Rodriguez, and this is the Brand Therapist Podcast, where we come together and dive deep into the psychology of branding. We live in a new era that asks us to step up and show our individuality, learn what makes us unique and different in this world. Let's open the door to possibilities so you can win in business, life, and relationships, because everything starts with you. Hello, hello, hello. I am so excited, Miguel, to have you here today with me at the Brand Therapist Podcast. And it wouldn't be brand therapy if we didn't start with a childhood question, right? Let's go. (laughs) So if I asked you, is there something in your childhood story that inspired you to what you do today? That is such a great question because I don't know. I'm sure there is, right? So I grew up a little different in a sense that we didn't live anywhere longer than two and a half years. I grew up at some part in time in my childhood. It was in a domestic violence relationship in a sense of you know child abuse and things like that. And so having imagination to hide from the things that are existing in the world kind of comes natural. You know, even though I'm a middle child, I kind of grew up with my mom and a single mom relationship. And, and there's these periods where she used to take me to work. So she used to sneak me to work because she didn't have a babysitter and she would put me in a closet and she'd be like, you know, she calls me Gally or Michelob. And she'd be like, Gally, now when you, when we come in here, you have to be really, really quiet. No one can know you're here. And so I used to comment, go in a closet. I'd take my favorite toys or my favorite book. And, you know, I would do my thing for however many hours, you know, my mom is at work. So I got to imagine that much of that becomes me as I grow because it's about having an imagination. It's about seeing things completely different. And it's really about surviving and thriving in ways that people say you shouldn't, right? You shouldn't do that. You're, you shouldn't have to do that. But in much of my upbringing, it was that and we did and it worked and here we are, right? So I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the transitions, a lot of the moving, you know, my mother's brilliant in the sense that she graduated high school at 16. She has two degrees. She has two bachelor's degrees, two master's degrees. And at one point was working on her PhD. She was even a sharpshooter for the Ohio uh, penal system. So my mom had all these gifts of saying, hey, you can discover, you can do whatever you want. But along this journey of whatever we're going through in life, you can't let it defeat you. You can have the best and the worst of it, depending on how you see it. And there are times where I saw the worst of it, but for the most part, it became an adventure. And so life for me can sometimes be that as well. I love that. You and I met serendipitously. We knew about each other and then we met and we did some things together. And then we came back together around this Hispanic organization. Can you tell us a little bit about your Hispanic heritage? Yeah. So my mom came to the U.S. I think early 50s, early 60s. My family is from Panama, by the way of Barbados and Jamaica and some of the other islands. And so that all really relates to, of course, slavery and then the transition from freedom to what we now know is is the canals, right? And so when you think about the Panama Canal, originally the French were the first ones to step in there and try it in the United States. But between all that, you had these migrations of people from all over the world, specifically mainly the islands at some point. And so they all migrate to Panama. And so my family has been in Panama for a really, really long time, as well as the other islands. And so 
for whatever reason, my grandmother, who was what they call a princess and the prize of the island or the Isthmus, fell in love with an American GI. And they later moved to the United States after having my mom. But a lot of my family is still in Panama. Most people have what we identify as a cedula which means that they have dual citizenship in the United States as well as in Panama. And they come, in back, they come back and forth um, as much or as little as they want. But yeah, that's the quick journey. It's weird though, because when I think about it, my grandfather, Grandpa Roland, his father's name was Mitch. Mitch ended up marrying Elisa, who was my grandmother's mom, once they all kind of settled in the U.S. So you have this dual marriage that ends up happening within the family, which is really neat. So my grandparents end up marrying each other. <laughs> y- y'all figure that part out, right? Uh, <laughs> but um, so super cool. Actually, those would be my great grandparents. But yeah, yeah, that's the lineage into the U.S. And uh, how's your Spanish? Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I knew Spanish as a kid. When my grandmother was alive, she was adamant about. So she was adamant about two things: one, that we learn Spanish; two, that we integrate into the U.S. Well, it's kind of hard to be brown or Black and integrate into the U.S. speaking another language. And where my grandparents in many ways could pass, they didn't look Black. They looked more white than they did anything else, except for in the summer when they turned those like really nice gold bronze. Yeah, so it was kind of a hard thing. And then we grew up, and my mom consistently, you know, for much of my life, grew up in white neighborhoods and white communities and where I was the only Black, brown, whatever. And so when I had hair, they had what they identify as this pretty long hair. It was it didn't grow like the black kids hair in, in America. It didn't grow like the white kids. It was kind of like this mixture of both, you know, and my brother, God, he had it worse because he looked like a little Cuban from the DR running around chocolate and his hair did grow straight. It was bananas. So, you know, they were like, what are y'all? And then his name is Jesus Bayanos. I teased my mom. We were just talking about this. I said, it's not fair because she gave me. So my first name is named after an uncle who passed away, but my second name is named after my father, which we won't mention here because I, I hate my second name. You know, so it's Miguel, American name Hampton, right? Well, my brother's name is Jesus Bayano, right? And so I was like, yo, ma, like, how'd I get cheated? Like, he gets the full authentic road to being, you know, Hispanic, Latino, and, and I get this partial, right? I don't understand. So I still tease her to this day, like, he got the best name because long, short story, Somebody asked me a long time ago, well, not too long ago, but they always used to ask where our our last name came from. And so my father was adopted, right? And so his family, his the white side of his family comes from Germany. The black side of his family, we're not really familiar. We just knew that they lived in the mountains in Pennsylvania. But he was adopted by a black family by the name of the Hamptons. And so we were in this big meeting and these people were talking about their heritage and their lineage. And somebody said, hey, Miguel, where's your last name come from? And I kind of embarrassed and stopped the conversation in the room. And I was like, slavery? I don't know where it comes from. You know what I mean? Like somebody gave us this name and it's been with us ever since. Like the only names we actually have. So I, going back to my mom and my brother, I was like, my brother could totally drop the last name and just be like, Jesus Bayano, that's who I am, let's go. But the cool part about lineage, right? We know that our last name goes all the way back to England. It's Edgehill on my mother's side. There was a sailor who sailed for a particular country, yada, 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 went to Barbados. He had slaves on the island and he ended up splitting the island because he married a slave woman by the name of Sarah. And he had once half of the island is African, the other are slaves, Africans, right? And the other half of the islands are being his white English family. And so even now, when you go to Barbados, there's a church that you can go into and you can sign. There's a book in there that all it lists all the edge hills. 
we know that we're directly related to the Edge Hills and a number of other people. Like we've done some research and family and kind of holding on to where you are, and where you come from. So even go, I guess, going back to childhood, right? You got to have an imagination and makes me who I am. I love it. I love that. And I love that you know so much about your heritage. I think it's so important that we know about our heritage. I mean, a lot of people are like, okay, I'm Hispanic, but I also have German descendants and I have a German side. And I'm sure you know about it. It's like, I'm always on time. I get my stuff done. And people are like, are you Hispanic or are you not Hispanic? What are you? (laughs) Who are you? Sometimes I ask that same question to myself, but moving on, let me ask you, I want to know a little bit about what you do. I know you call yourself the marketing superhero, and I love to know about that a little bit more because you are, you definitely are. Thank you. I randomly come up with these names. I hate titles. Where marketing superhero kind of comes from was everybody kept saying, what's your title? So at one point in time, I was district sales manager for a company. Another time I was vice president for a company. And then I sat out on my own and everybody was like, well, you own your own business. You have to have a title. And I was like, do I have to have a title? And they were like, yes. And they were like, well, you're the CEO. I was like, cool, if you want me to be. Um, They're like, you're the founder. I'm like, okay, cool, if you want me to be. And then one day I said, no, I'm just that guy. I'm that guy, Miguel H., right? And then they was like, well, that doesn't really explain who you are or what you do. And so I was goofing off one day on LinkedIn and I said, you know, should be just the marketing superhero. That's what I'm going to do. You know, when I break open my shirt, there's a big M right here, stands for Miguel Marketing, whichever one you want to run with. But what ends up happening is I have been in... I guess, a creative space for much of my life, no matter what company I've worked for. And the journey has been really through sales and impact and how do you gain or how do you build or how do you reach? And that's really all marketing, marketing, advertising, sales, digital media, content creation. And so I like to think to my clients who often bring me challenges. I'll say a good portion of my clients come to me in the 12th hour and they say, hey, Miguel, we got this thing or we have this opportunity and we want to achieve X. How do we do it? And can you do it tomorrow? (laughs) Absolutely. We need a commercial like tomorrow. Knowing darn well, it should take you, you know, a couple of weeks to shoot it, but I'll shoot it, cut it, edit, send it to the TV station and we're ready to rock. And so I like to think myself a superhero, right? You come to me and I'm going to be able to help you work through your solution right? And identifying the win for you real fast. And sometimes I will say I am the villain, right? Because there's not much difference between the hero and the villain. And sometimes I have clients who come to me who need a villain. They need somebody that is ready to go to fight who can be the bad guy because they can't. And in marketing, we get to be that as well. I love that. So tell me about the Miguel Hampton brand. You know, I guess for people who are watching or listening to your milk one time, this stuck with me. She told me that I was a dinosaur in a digital age. And I said, yo, that's mean. <laughs> so in the world of digital content, and yes, I'm in this space, but me personally, I was kind of non-existent. So Miguel, the brand is a disruptor in the sense that I, you know, I can coach you through a process, but sometimes I won't do it for myself. But as a brand, I've put myself more and more in the digital age of Milka, even though I still do a lot of analog stuff, right? Because I still think there's a perfect world for both. Because if the world cut off and there's no more social media, how do you market yourself? And we're not having that conversation with people. And it's more likely today than ever, right? But as a personal brand, I really like to say I'm an educator. I love the ability to discover new things and to really understand all different aspects of business. So when my customers come to me, whether you're an engineer, you are in automotive or you're in cleaning, right? I can help support where you want to be in your business space. 
I'm a disruptor in many ways because one of my mantras is move beyond the box, right? Get the hell out of the box that you exist in and see it bigger than that. And so I really love to, to poke at my clients. One of the classes that I teach, the first set of sessions is all about mindset and changing who you or what you think a thing is so that you can begin to do something different and better. So I'm a disruptor in that sense. I'm definitely an advocate for all things winning. And sometimes a loss means you have to, you know, is also a win and we have to look at it that way. But I think as a brand, that's who I am. I think that's what most of my customers would say because they get to define me realistically. I don't, you know, I know what I wanted to be, but sometimes it's your clients, it's your, it's the world that says and defines who you are in this space. I'd like to be like, yo, I'm sexy, strong, vibrant, and energized. And they'd be like, yeah, Gail, sometimes, but not so much, you know? <laughs> so. so tell me, when did you become famous? I don't know. So, okay, let me be honest. I didn't know what famous meant, right? So I think we all want to be famous until we look up the definition of famous. Like we're all striving. We're like, we want to be famous. We want to be famous. But there's a difference between being famous and a superstar. Some of us want to be yeah. superstars, not realizing yeah. that we're already famous. So right. by definition, famous meaning people recognize you, people know you. What people don't know is when I was little, I did some modeling for John Roberts Powers and went on a casting call and won to be in the pudding commercials with Bill Cosby. I didn't get the opportunity to do it because my family didn't have the money to send me to New York to make it happen. But the fact that I won and I was casted, that's always a win for me. But I think in my own right and in my own circle, in my own sphere of influence, I've always been famous by definition. It's always been there. I learned probably in my middle adulthood, 20s, early 30s, that whole saying is the people you know, right? And I realize it's the reverse. It's the people who know you. The more people who know you, the more opportunities that come along. And I guess that attaches to the branding and marketing. And I so I know it's important that the outside world or within a certain group, they know who you are, what you represent, so that when you come through, a lot of the work is already done. So I don't know. I guess in that sense, I've always been famous. I'd like to be super famous, though, at some point. I don't know how we're going to. Maybe you can help me achieve that. Yeah, um, definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. We, we will talk about that later. But to be famous, you have to know your greatest fear. So what is yours? I'm afraid of myself. Mm. I really don't have a lot of fear. I don't believe in fear in a sense that I, I think fear is self-manifested. We create things that hinder us or stop us. And so my greatest fear has always been me on um, both the good, bad. You know, it's getting to know what I'm capable of, getting to know what I'm not capable of. Even some of my successes or lack thereof is because something I did or wouldn't do. So, yeah, my greatest fear is me. If I was going to look at fear in a sense of like my greatest concerns in life, the things that I, I, I try to avoid. And those are things like being poor, economically challenged, right? Being homeless, because these are things that I've experienced and I know what it feels like to be there. And so I do much of the things in my life now to avoid those situations but I wouldn't call it fear. I just, I have concerns. But the biggest thing, if I was afraid of anything in this world would be me. So tell me about a moment that you've had where you felt like you were holding back. Oh God, um, all the time? <laughs> That's a great question, holding back. I've learned that sometimes in some spaces, we don't know when to give it our all or when to push the envelope. Like I'm a risk taker. So there are times when I probably should hold back and I don't, 
right? And there are times when I hold back and I shouldn't. So it's there's always those moments. Recently, I was working on a deal. It's a three-year deal to do some time-lapse photography and creative work for a company. And I might have been a bit more aggressive than I should have been, right? Because we ended up losing a deal. And I'm not sure why we lost it. We've been working on it for almost six to eight months. But by the time we got ready to sign contracts, the company said, hey, we're going to go in a different direction without really any great explanation. And that sucks for anybody who's in business and you're seeing that when you don't get closure to why something goes away, you know, all you can do is assume and make adjustments. But I know one of my partners was like, yo, Gail, you might've been a little too aggressive in part of the negotiation, which might've turned them off. So that's a hard question, real talk. You know, sometimes it's for the best, right? I know that we get very excited about certain contracts or certain things that are gonna happen in our lives. And then they don't happen. And then we're like, why did it happen? And yeah. I think sometimes they don't happen for a reason. <laughs> we probably don't know in the moment, but I'm sure that there's some sort of reason behind it. And we just got to keep that aware. But it is hard when you've been working for a lot of months and weeks on something and then it just falls through. But let me ask you about that. So who in your life, we all have these great mentors who has been an amazing mentor for you? Everybody. I learn from literally everybody, even my daughter. I mean, there are some people that definitely stand out. And I think I look at people. I once told a friend of mine, God talks to me through other people. It's yeah. people like you, people like Marie Sweeney, who's a great friend who ran for U.S. Senate in the state of Kentucky. One of the first Black people to do it since Reconstruction, who's been a great friend ever since. I had the privilege during the pandemic of meeting somebody by the name of Ryan Curl, who's who owns a really large uh, video production company in Michigan. And we've had the privilege of sitting down and mentoring and talking and podcasting and doing a bunch of stuff. But I think everybody, I think if you take time to silence your mind, silence yourself, people are always dropping these nuggets of wisdom. But I, I'll tell you, the closest folks that I would identify as mentors are people who understand me understand the journey that I'm on and can be honest with me along that journey, right? With no judgment to whether I take their advice or use it or not. I think everybody, everybody can part some wisdom in, on the journey. There are people out here in the world that want to be multimillionaires. That's never, at this age, I don't want to be that. I know people who could coach you how to get there, but they're not multimillionaires, right? Does that make sense? I've sat down with a lot of great people, high and low, what we would consider high and low in the world who, who definitely parted pieces of wisdom. So to that point, tell me a breakthrough you had that you thought it was going to be impossible to make. I think everything is possible. Concerns of things not happening. I've had such a life that nothing that I thought was going to happen has actually happened. It's always been a version of it. So mm -hmm. I don't know that anything is impossible. I've always gained something along the process of doing a thing. When I started the marketing business, it was just promotional products, right? I was like, I'm not going to do anything else, but I'm going to use the promotional product business to launch into something else in the future, right? Because I started, I got into business because the two companies that I worked for went out of business. You know, I went into business out of circumstance. Now, I've always had the capacity and, and the know-how. If there was anything impossible, right, or if there was a, the idea of something was impossible, being here 17 years later, right, in the marketing space, doing video production, doing photography, being a consultant, doing coaching, I'm sure at some point in time, 
I question things like, man, are we going to be able to survive this? Are we going to be able to make this happen? Um, but we're still doing it. I know when the pandemic hit, that has been, and it's still kind of a very stressful period of where are we going, right? And how are we going to get there? Or can we continue to thrive after we survive these next several moments that we're going to go through? But I, I don't believe in the impossible, though. I, I just, I but I, I offer myself that flexibility to know that things are not going to be exactly what I may see them to be. Yes. And so tell me a couple of challenges that you had during the pandemic. Oh, God. So we started getting hit with the pandemic probably four months early before there was an announcement. So that August, we landed a project. I had just started teaching photography youth program. And all of a sudden, around about September, things started closing and no one was saying what it was. People were getting sick. Um, and then we realized that on some of the products that we distribute or we help people do, they were getting caught up in shipment. And we didn't under, you know, I wasn't paying attention to that. And it was like, man, what? And we were, you know, literally like, what in the world is going on? And then around about that October, I'd had a conversation with a friend of mine who had, um, they are in a really large events product company. And they were having these LED screen walls that like you use it to sports arenas and concerts. They were having them made and they're made in Italy. And so he was like, man, we just dropped half a million dollars on these new screens. I can't wait for them to get in here. And then they never came. <laughs> and he was telling me how they didn't come. And I was like, what's going on? And so at that point, we realized that there was something larger happening that we weren't aware of. But then slowly, because we do a lot of events, right. they started getting canceled. And so come December, that was I your realized, big money maker, right? That was your yeah, big money maker event. Yeah, we were about 50% operation at that point. And then by the time we rolled into February, March, I was completely closed. We had no projects on the books. Everything that we were working on was canceled and we're sweating bullets. And I did like what a lot of people did, right? I called a couple of investors and said, hey, if you give me some money, you give me some money, you give me some money, I'll take some money and we'll go to China. We're not literally flying to China, but we'll go to China and we'll import in some of the PPE because we, we have access and we know how to do it. And a couple of people said, yeah, sure. And then we got burned on that deal. In the sense that we got product in, product got laid, we got railroaded politically. It was it was a nightmare to get into that space. And so we kind of broke even and then walked away from it. It was like, yo, that yeah, you know, I still got boxes of stuff somewhere behind me. Uh, but um, you know, at that point, that was the challenge. Like, how do you pivot? How do you find a new way in this existence? And I'm an avid video game player. So I think right about now I'm playing, we were playing PUBG all the time. And it was like one of my guys in LA while we were playing, he said, yo, Gail, what are you doing for work? And I was like, I'm not. And he's like, why don't you live stream? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, you have all the equipment in the world, man. He said, I bet you your customers don't know that their message doesn't have to stop flowing. And I said, you know what? You got a valid point. So my daughter would tell you, I came home. I came back to the office. I grabbed a whole bunch of gear. We set it all up. We trigged, we rigged. And I said, oh, let's do this. And literally, we started doing virtual conferences and live streaming. We started producing other clients' podcasts and just realized I went completely digital for wow. myself and for my clients. And that is all we've been doing ever since for the most part. Mm, I love that. So what are the lessons learned? Be open to change. It's the hardest thing. Like our brain immediately wants to stay comfortable. Like our bodies tell us, don't do a thing. But to be willing to change, you have to allow yourself just an open mind to say it's not going to hurt you. Being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And I've learned that the pivot is a beautiful thing. I think those 
who have been in this entrepreneurial world, this business development world, regardless of what scale you're on, we understood and have a skill set of navigating difference and change. And so if you embrace that, you'll survive this. You'll find yourself in a new space or a new business or a new opportunity. So those are great lessons. I think also relying on your friends. Everybody will tell you when you're down, you know, you, you know you're in it alone. We, we get in a silo like, oh, we can't do it. We can't do it. But you got friends and family in all shapes and colors and creeds, blood or not blood, who will be there. There are people out here in the world that want to see you win, no matter what the situation. And isn't it because we just can't ask for help? Part of it is understanding how to ask for help. But part of it is also understanding that there are people in your corner who can't help you. Mm. And we get frustrated sometimes when we go to the people who can't help us. And then we're mad and we're irritated and all these feelings come along. So I think sometimes it's asking for help, but it's knowing who to ask. I think it's also sometimes accepting the help that comes Mm -hmm. because help doesn't always come the way we want it to. Yes. You might ask your friend for $100,000 to float you over the next six months and they might give you a job opportunity, but you're mad because they didn't give you cash. Because it's not going to let you go in the the direction that you want to go in. I know that's an extreme ideal, but I mean, really, I think it's accepting the help when it comes and understanding how to use it. Asking is important, but you also have to be vulnerable. I think when we talk about vulnerability, I'm not saying vulnerability with everybody. And then sometimes we have to understand who it is safe to be vulnerable with. I can be vulnerable with my wife, but that don't mean she's going to help me through the journey in the sense of actually picking up some bricks and some concrete and helping me build the wall. You know, I could be vulnerable with my daughter, but again, that doesn't mean she's going to do my bookkeeping, right? (laughs) I might need to be vulnerable with my accountant and say, look, we just lost $100,000. We just lost $50,000. I'm bleeding over here. Can you help me figure this part out? That might be a vulnerable space that's worth being in where it's going to allow you to overcome the challenges that you're facing. So I think you just have to look at it. I love that. So tell me what's next for Miguel? Like you can say the recent next, like the next few six months or three years or 10 years. What's your horizon? I have no idea. (laughs) And I was just thinking about that today. And I know there are some things that I want to do because I haven't done them. Right. So last year I got the opportunity to shoot my first documentary, which was amazing. It was kind of actually I shot two. So I can't even say that. Wow. One, I was part of the film team and the crew that put it on. The other one, I completely did on my own with my own team. And I've really kind of fell in love with that type of video production. And so I want to do more of it. I am an advocate and an activist. So during the pandemic, I was out there. But, you know, as some of my friends and clients will say, you was out there way before some of that. So you've been doing it a really long time. And one of the the people you talked about, mentor, um, I did this uh, Grow Your Video program with Ryan where a handful of us was in a room together for about six, I think about six days, I felt like six weeks, but it was like six days, I think over, over six weeks, maybe. And we were talking about building. And one of the things that they said is like, Miguel, your niche is activism. Your niche is social equity, is social justice. What if you really kind of niche down and started developing projects around that, right? You know, childhood prevention, domestic violence, the inequities that we face in the world of DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I have. So I don't know where it's going to go. I know I'm talking to a friend of mine who just wrote three scripts and I just finished reading them. So a short film might be coming. 
I would love to learn how to do a feature film, maybe work on a feature crew with someone just to kind of get a taste there. Who knows where I'm going? You know, I'm still doing business coaching. I am teaching right now a 13-week program for entrepreneurs in terms of how to grow and move their companies to the next level, doing more of that. You know, I'm having fun. If I'm having fun, I'm making some money. I'm going to be excited. I got a girl who's going, my girl, my only girl, my only baby, just graduated. (laughs) Well, Technically, she just graduated from Ivy Tech and here in Jeffersonville or New Albany, Indiana, wherever we are. And she's graduating high school here in about two weeks. And then she's going to go off to college at TSU. So who knows what that's going to do? Because I'm likely to sell everything I have and go travel to go to Tennessee State with her. (laughs) That's right. You might be doing a film or you might just be doing something totally different. Absolutely. I'm totally open to wherever the wind is going to blow. It's about being happy. It's about having good energy, being around great people and, you know, fighting for what's right, I think, and changing narratives. One thing um, I've learned, I'm working with Marie Sweeney and his father is the late Dr. P.L. Sweeney. And a lot of people are not familiar with Dr. P.L. Sweeney, but in the late 40s, he was identified as one of the wealthiest black men in the country, specifically coming out of Kentucky and led a lot of the legal fights and economic fights for certain parks like Shiny Park to be integrated. He led the lawsuits that allowed the school system to be integrated and a number of things. And a lot of people don't tell his story. And what I learned through reading and combing through a lot of his financials from back in the 40s and and, and 50s was that he wasn't the only one that we don't hear about in the history books. There are a lot of black and brown folks in this country who have been doing the work. Like we hear about Martin Luther King. We hear about James Baldwin. We hear about Malcolm X. But we don't hear about the Sweeney's of the world. And there are a bunch of them. And so hopefully... That might be a thing too. You know, I can find some funding and some friends out there in the world that says, hey, go do the research. And maybe that's the next documentary too. Who knows? Right. Who knows? But I want to know where can we find you? Where can the listeners find you? Where can they get a hold of you? Standing on a corner in America, <laughs> waving a flag. No, I'm just playing. Uh, <laughs> Literally, you can find me. So I have multiple websites. You can find me at F5Enterprises.com or you can find me at MiguelHampton.com, right? You can find me. They all link together. I do have a podcast called Common Conversations. So if you go to commonconvo.tv, you'll see some of the work that we've done in the last year. And I'm actually, we one of the documentaries we just finished on HIV stigma in Louisville will actually be going up there here shortly as well. You can find me on all, what, Instagram and Facebook. So here's a fun statement. I used to be mad at this. If you Google Miguel Hampton, Indiana News, you're going to find something. You'll be able to track me down. My cell phone's out in the ether. I only know because I get calls all day long from random people. That is hilarious. Well, Miguel, thank you so much for being on the Brand Therapist Podcast. I so appreciate you. I know we have to sit down and talk because we haven't talked for a long time. And always talking with you opens my mind up to new things, new possibilities. And so I'm really excited to continue the conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And yes, you are you are missed, right? Is I love to see your smile. Um, right this minute. Like, I'm just like, oh, cheese, right? Y'all have no idea. Yamilka is like energy in real life is just, I mean, it comes across in YouTube, which is super cool. And yeah, so love being in your space. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back and hang out. Great. So we'll stay in the conversation. Let's do it. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brand Therapist. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. 
If you'd like to connect with me on social, you can find me at Yamoka Rodriguez Branding, Bespoke Branding Agency, or email me at yamoka at yamoka.com. Thanks for listening.